From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. So I'm kind of designing my speak for you and for the people listening, and that's called audience design. This is just a plaster on a wound that needs needs okay. a major operation on it. Are you going to skewer people like a comedian, or do you do caramelised, you know, salty, or just plain Ricky Gervais Armageddon? Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Shari, why some people quickly acquire accents, e-scooters, dangerous menaces, or environmentally friendly transport solution, and Richard E. Grant on hosting this year's BAFTAs. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that Yes, has been living in the Netherlands for many years now. The musings on the news, or newsings if you will, on this morning's Ryan Turbody show started with an aphorism, well, that was new to me. Where there's a lash, there's a back. And sure enough, there's uh, there's a, a backlash to all quiet on the Western Front. <laughs> Just, you think, oh no, that, that's an extraordinary film, which I've, I thought it was. Now you can't say, it, and I never did, it's authentic because you weren't there. But you can say it feels like it, it, it must have the feel of. Anyway, the, it seems that in Germany, which is kind of bizarre given that it's a German feature film that has swept the BAFTAs and looks good to go for the Oscars, the, the, the German commentary has kind of come out against the film, saying that it's so far removed from the book from 1928, which is considered one of the most important uh, books produced in the German language, an anti-war book, essentially all quiet on the Western Front, as you can imagine. Uh, but one observer... Uh, said, at a rough estimate, eight or more tenths of the film consists of scenes that have not only little but nothing to do with the book. If the characters in the film did not have the same names as in the book, it'd be very difficult to find any parallels worth mentioning. And somebody else writing in, in the papers over in Germany called the film sheer impertinence, saying it takes a fair degree of ignorance, disrespect and Oscar lust. How about that for a word? Oscar lust to spoil the masterpiece in such a way, even to pulverise it so mercilessly in terms of content and narrative. And uh, another says every minute and every scene and every sentence of the remake screams out for an Oscar. And this has turned the horror of a war with more than nine million fallen soldiers into the pandering, vegetarian gruel of a hideous, meaty slaughter. So that is uh, uh, the feeling among certain members of the German public on the film uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Everyone has very strong feelings. We're talking about history, we're talking about art, and when the two collide, uh, we could be here all day talking about, and we're not going to do it, but we could be here all day talking about films that have to try and put in maybe 10 years, maybe 100 years, maybe 1,000 years into two hours or two and a half hours, and you know things get cut up and caught up and cut out. The strange world of international filmmaking. Fair play to some Germans, I guess, for calling out what they perceive to be the shortcomings of the film adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front. You don't see many Irish people dissenting when Banshees of Inish Erin got all its adulation. I mean, it's good and all, but about as authentic as a Klingon kindergarten, isn't it? Anyway, Ryan has long since moved on to Michael Collins' OBE. Liam Neeson. Still going. He's in this film. I'm dying to see it. It's it's Neil Jordan's latest film, which looks... It's a kind of noir-type film called Marlowe. It looks great. It was screening in New York last week. And Liam Neeson, of all people, said that despite decades of on-screen experience, there's still one thing he's just not comfortable with, and that's sex scenes. 
not into him. Just does it. He said, "I'll be honest. When I see a sex scene, I just can't look at them. I get I get embarrassed. I know they're choreographed and stuff, but I don't need to see that." And he says he'd prefer to avoid them entirely. I don't like to do them. I've done quite a few, and I would have preferred to leave it to the imagination, especially for for what he says, ladies, the actresses. Um, so just when you thought that might be something that he would be cool with or okay with, he's going, oh, I'd, rather, I'd rather not, I'd rather not. The burdens of stardom, eh? Meanwhile, strange goings-on down under. Uh, you know, of course fish rain from the sky um, in Australia. I mean, this is the world we live in, which is getting madder and madder. Um, residents of a, rem- a remote outback community have been left marvelling at the heavens uh, as uh, fish rained from the sky in the um, surprising but not unheard of weather event. We're heading out to the Tanami Desert here and people are stunned to see the fish drop during heavy rainfall. Imagine. <laughs> the world has gone quite mad. And you're standing there thinking... You know, soft day, not not soft at all. Actually, quite hard because the fish. We're talking about this, the size of two fingers. Uh, these fish, they were spangled perch. Well, a star spangled perch, really. What do you think of? Are spangled grunters, most common freshwater fish in Australia. Blimey, mate, etc., etc. Despite J.K. Rowling being cancelled, her IP continues to churn out the green. Uh, the Harry Potter franchise has been a beloved classic for over two decades and now they're waiting. The Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, the Cursed Child, wasn't it a play? Did very well. And now they're making it into a movie or a film. And it looks like, who's going to be in it? Uh, Daniel Radcliffe might be returning and Emma Watson and Rupert Grint all having a go. And um, it will focus on Harry's son, Albus Severus Potter. And... Draco Malfoy's son, Scorpius Malfoy. Do you know somebody in your life who might be nicknamed Scorpius Malfoy? <laughs> a Scorpius person. Now, I haven't seen them. Uh, I haven't seen that. I never really, really got into the Harry Potter thing, to be honest. She's half cancelled, isn't she, by some people, isn't it? J.K. Rowling. But we're not going there. Absolutely not going there. Not today. There's only so many cancelled writers we can take on, on one show. Or endeavoured to, to be cancelled writers. The never-ending money machine that is the Harry Potter franchise... Next, a quick stop at the still-running Dalgate shenanigans. Uh, Rishi Sunak has intervened in the row over the rewriting of Roald Dahl's books. Uh, Prime Minister's office says, when it comes to our rich and varied literary heritage, um, he agrees with the BFG that we shouldn't gobble-funk around with words. And I think he says it's important that works of literature and works of fiction are preserved and not airbrushed. We have always defended the right to free speech and expression. But then on the other hand, and I'm trying to offer a little balance on this, um, Philip Pullman, the author um, of his dark materials and other stories, uh, says that um, children should just read better authors, which is a little catty. And it says, let him go out of print, he says. Um, People should instead explore readers, uh, writers such as Mallory Blackman, Michael Morpurgo and Beverly Naidoo. Read all of these wonderful authors who are writing today. And don't get as much of a look in because of the massive commercial gravity of people like Roald Dahl. Isn't there room for all of these authors? Like Morpurgo and um, Mallory and Beverly and all these are terrific writers. As is Philip Pullman. Why should we just say no to all of that? When did the minds start to completely close in on them? Anyway. 
Come on, Ryan, if we all just got along, no one would get their name in the headlines, would they? But wait, what do the listeners think? Margaret says I agree with you, and they don't all agree with me, by the way, so you're prepared. Uh, I agree with you this one. Um, about the editing of any books that are in circulation, some for many years. The writer is perhaps long gone in many cases, like Roald Dell. Who thinks for sure that any writer would agree to any editor, no matter how current or cool they might be, interfering with his or her work, which already was edited perhaps long ago and agreed upon by both parties at that time? Would you or any writer want their books to be re-edited? Perhaps it's a question for contemporary writers, but not for writers who are now dead and gone, who produced books during their lifetime. That's from Margaret. Now, I was reading uh, Victor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist who spent time in a concentration camp. And it's, I thought it was a book, but actually it's an essay that comes in the form of the book. And I just finished it. I had to read it in, in various sittings because it's so profound and so moving and so viscerally, intellectually uh, powerful. Um, and and it, it, it blew my mind because... Here's this psychiatrist. Man's Search for Meaning is the name of the book. And if you if you buy it, it's 100 pages. That's all. It's the sl slimmest little volume. Here's a psychiatrist in the striped pajamas, quote unquote, in in the most obscene conditions you can imagine, and he's working almost as a psychiatrist, the psychotherapist in in the camp, trying to figure it all out. Imagine you should read. I, I've never seen read, read anything like it. But I'm just saying. Uh, if I can extrapolate from that very quickly, that he always refers to man does this. And if man does that and man does that, then man will not be this in the way that it was done once upon a time. So without wanting to belittle the enormity of what he's writing, about, as an example, do we or should we be going back in and saying, no, Victor, it's not man. You're wrong. It's it's or at least you're of your time. We now need to say people. Is that OK? That's a question. That's not me trying to be smart. I, I really mean that. Do we do that? If that's what if that's what's if that's the, the thing. That's my question. Andrew writes, surely progress is being able to apply education and learning to move on and evolve from what has gone before. It's interesting to note that the people objecting to progress on correcting culture, uh, particularly statues and literature, tend to be from privileged groups that have little or no experience of being offended and discriminated against. Something the national broadcaster should consider which we do do. And if you're, you know, if you're a voice or a face on the national broadcaster, believe me, you'll know all about what being offended looks like when you go online. So I don't think anyone would necessarily consider themselves to be um, free of comment, criticism or complaint or critique in that regard, um, be it about your appearance, your voice, uh, what you do, where you do it why you do it. So in fairness, I think we would have a good idea of, of what to talk about. And also, um, what what one person talks about as describes as being progress on correcting culture. Another might say it's not progress at all, but in fact, it's a step backward. Um, so it depends, doesn't it? Another, thank you. I agree with you about Dal and appreciate your passion. I can't imagine what my primary school pupils for the past 20 years would have done without him as he wrote his books. He wrote those words with a pencil in his writing shed, editing each of those sentences 50 times. We learned to love reading through its his whiz-popping works. So thanks for defending his literature uh, for the and on behalf of the children. And you're right. Well, not everyone agrees with you uh, to whoever that is because here's one. That's really unhappy. Where is it? This one really doesn't like what I was saying. Um, so we'll go to that. I could, there are a few instances, such as the Money for Nothing lyrics, 
which ruin an otherwise wonderful song where some selective editing means it can still be played on the radio. Um, that's that's not, No, here's the one I was looking for. I hope you're going to speak to a publisher before wading into this issue. No. The reality is that no literary work is treated as sacrosanct by publishers and Roald Dahl books, books have been edited and re-edited on multiple occasions over the years. The very fact that the books are still being edited shows that they are still relevant today and that we want children to keep reading them instead of regarding them as a time capsule so we can access the views of a mere, more prejudiced past. The fact that Agatha Christie novels are still being widely read and enjoyed today is why her book, Ten Little N-Words, has been done the service of being renamed and then there were none. You'll hardly be going to bat for that original title, will you? I'll come back to you on that. In the version first of uh, Charlie and Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas were a tribe of 3,000 black pygmies who had been imported by Mr Willy Wonka from the very deepest and darkest parts of the African jungle where no white man had been before. Mr Wonka keeps them in the factory where they were have replaced the sacked white workers. Wonka's little slaves are delighted with their new circumstances and particularly with their diet of chocolate before they lived on green caterpillars, beetles, eucalyptus leaves and the bark of the bong bong tree. This was changed in 1973, long before the current culture wars. Was that edit a mistake? Sensitive editing makes uh, the books that you enjoyed as a child more accessible and less hurtful for more children. And it's important to remember that these are children's books, so maybe it's not about you anymore. Best wishes, A. Fair play. Nice email. Um, but I don't agree with you um, on all of it. I agree that certain parts of, of your mail is, are, are correct, um, with the gr- grossly offensive words taken out here and there uh, in isolated incidents. But the difference here is that they've gone wholesale into pretty much all the books and taking out paragraphs, not just words, not just an offensive word in a title or an offensive comment here. It, it, it's, it's, it's wholesale. I'll say what I said yesterday. You might as well take the man's name off the book cover if you're going to rewrite his stories to suit a time. So a bit of it, maybe, but this thing seems a bit out of control. The debate will rumble on and on, no doubt. But will anyone change their mind? I wonder. And with that wondering, let's leave the newsings from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show right there and move on with our lives. Or at least this radio programme. When the former England manager Steve McLaren hilariously developed a Dutch accent while managing in the Netherlands, most of us chortled and rolled our eyes. But some language boffins stuck their pencils in their mouths and wondered why such a thing would possibly happen. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Vera Regan, Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD, talked about the phenomenon of the wandering accent. Claire started the item by playing the aforementioned Steve McLaren, talking, uh, single Dutch. I sort of knew uh, when I came here in the Champions League, uh, Liverpool or Arsenal, I thought maybe one of them we would draw and uh, it is Arsenal, I think, one of the, the toughest teams in the draw and I think it will be uh, very very difficult for our players and to experience uh, big games Champions League will be fantastic for the players So we wanted to explore this further and I'm joined in the studio now by Vera Regan who's Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD Good morning to you Vera Good morning Claire So what is this uh, phenomenon of people who pick up accents really quickly and we hear Steve McLaren there he's not speaking in Dutch but he sounds like English might almost be his second language That's right 
Um, what he's, there are two things going on here. Number one, he doesn't speak Dutch, so he's going to have to use his English, but he needs to get on with the people he's talking to. So what he's doing is he's accommodating his speech. First of all, he's trying to make his, he's altering his speech in English to make himself sound more like the Dutch people that he's talking to. That's really important for his teamwork. And uh, I've heard another French guy doing the same thing because he's well, living in France. This is Joey Barton. Actually, Joey we'll, Barton. We'll play, well, let's play this and have a yeah, listen to it. Yeah, it's great fun. The footballer Joey Barton, who's from Merseyside, really strong Scouse accent normally. He developed this extraordinary French accent when he was on loan to the uh, Olympic Marseille in 2012. Let's hear this one. As I say, yesterday I make one tackle and all everybody speaks about is this tackle. Nobody speaks about a 50-yard pass that kills Balmon and, and it causes a red card for him. Um, and nobody sh- talks about the shot that um, Landru would have uh, been happy to, to see. You know, he didn't see the ball, never mind uh, have a chance to save it. So for me, it's important that people speak about uh, the qualities I bring as a footballer and uh, I'm a little bit bored, you know, from the English media and hopefully the French media is have more about has more about it than the, the English media and, and concentrate on uh, uh, li- stupid little uh, incidents like this. Maybe the one criticism of the French league is it's, it's a little bit uh, boring. Boring. It's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and and really what he's doing is he wants to get the guys to like him. He has the journalists on one hand, he has the fans. So he's going to try and align himself with the way they talk. So he's picking out bits of what he thinks sound French. So they're vowels. He says, I speak about this. So his vowels are purer than our French, our vowels in English. He uses easier words. He has no contractions. He says, we don't, we do not know about this. Instead, we don't know. And he's got stuff like he leaves out the grammar bit. So basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to make it easier for the person. And there's a second thing he's doing. And the, the Dutch guy does it too, which is like a foreigner talk. And that's a well-recognised thing. I mean, I guess if we're, if you and I met somebody and we knew they didn't understand it, they would try and simplify. And if you, we, we might find ourselves speaking loudly or slowly yes. or using simple words or leaving out all the grammatical bits and just putting in the words because mm-hmm. all, we, all we need is the meaning. We don't need to actually have all these extra bits that are kind of just structural. But beyond that, if you're in France and you speak English with a French accent, yes, <laughs> I can't believe I'm asking this, is a French person more likely to understand you if you do that? I'm guessing the answer is no. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> now, before we, 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 get, we, we, we get too carried away, there are reasons why this works. One, it's simpler. Two, he had a very strong North of England accent and the people listening to him are learning French, uh, English in French lycée. So they're learning standard English. So there's quite a gap between how he's speaking and how they're speaking. Yes. So in fact, he's not wrong to try and align himself more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, un- unfortunately, he's picking out different elements which don't necessarily always make it easier to understand. So the answer is yes and no. Mm-hmm.
both. We were talking about Austin Butler, the actor who played Elvis in the, the big movie, and he was accepting his award at the BAFTAs for Best Leading Actor, and we played a clip. Now, he had been teased a, a little before for not losing the Memphis accent that he had in the film, and he's from California. And at the BAFTAs the other night, he again had the, the Memphis twang. Do some people just pick up and retain accents? Is that, is that a phenomenon that some people just have? Well, for, there are two things there. First, there are people who are really good at learning languages and they have a gift and they just do it. It's like the Meryl Streep. She's fabulous. She can just do any accent. But the second thing is it depends a bit on the context and the motivation. If you have a really good motivation to align yourself with the person you're speaking to, you're much more likely to change your speech. So if you feel positive about the group, because if you feel negative about the group, you can actually distance that group by speaking differently. And that's what was going on here. Joey Barton wanted to be like the Dutch guy by saying sh instead of so. So he goes, I, 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 I see it. That means he thinks that by doing that one thing, which is salient for him, he, he thinks that makes him sound Dutch. Mm -hmm. That's going to align him more. So if I'm Austin Butler and I'm winning an award for playing Elvis and I'm winning an award for having the Memphis accent, I'm going to probably fall back into that when I'm doing my acceptance speech. Yes, because you've already, this is a, a success thing for you. You're, go, you're going to show once again that you are able to project yourself. And speaking is acting. There's a histrionic um, element to all of us when we speak. And in fact, in linguistics, they talk about performance and each time we speak, it's a performance mm -hmm. and we tailor how we speak to the person we're talking to. So, for instance, I'm kind of designing my speak for you and for the people listening. And that's called audience design. OK, and, and that's that we're doing that all of the time. Yeah. I know you heard Neve Farrelly and the great effort that she's making yes. to communicate with people. Now, she's not speaking English in, Ita in Italian, in an Italian accent. She's speaking Italian. She's going to huge rounds to, to make sure that she's understood and that's fits right. in. That's right. Now, she has a different approach. She's already learned a little bit of Italian. So she's not in a street in Italy with a great wash of incomprehensible speech washing over her. She, she couldn't have learned like that. So what she's done is she's learned a little bit in a classroom. And I heard her saying, and I do two hours of Italian classes a week. She's really putting her back into it. And that those classes help her to break down this stream of incomprehensible sound into manageable bits. So if she hears um, uh, ciao and she hears it again in another context, she's likely to say, OK, I'll try that out. Is this what it means? I'll test my hypothesis. I'll talk to somebody in the street. If the person responds positively, mm -hmm. then she knows that's a word. Vera Regan, Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD, who joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about the mysterious way some people change their accents depending on their circumstances. Sorry. Callers to Liveline this afternoon discussed the government's new cost of living package aimed at helping people cope with rising prices across the board. Dave, David Devaney is in Tume and Kentigoba. Your point, please, David. Hello, Joe. How are you, yeah. how are you doing? Okay. Uh, well, what I believe, I actually think social welfare payments, the unemployment assistance, should actually be decreased uh, and not additional payments made. Because you go into any shop, any spare, centre, any mm. restaurant, any bar, you'll see signs up on the wall, staff wanted, apply within. 
or I play with TV, and like there's full employment in the country now. I don't see the need why there should be. Uh, un- there are always going to be need for unemployment benefit, but it, it should be time. Well, some be people, time. some people can't work. You know, people are on well, then, Yeah, yeah, that's separate. Uh, disability benefit. That's a separate issue. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about unemployment assistance, okay. unemployment benefit. That's paid to people uh, that just are out of work for. Not, not because of an illness or a disability, that are just out of work. Uh, the, the, that politician that said there, there is a cohort, there's a cohort in the country that never worked, uh, don't have an intention of ever working in their life unless they're, that they're pushed into it by, uh, by some means. Uh, the, like, and the means, I see, is to, to reduce the, the benefits somewhat, to, to nudge them, to make, to make work. Worked going. And what are you saying? Bring it, bring it down to the level that it is in Northern Ireland. I well, I don't know what level it is in Northern Ireland. It's significantly I, lower than here. Yeah, I, 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 I would say like a tiered. Would say after six months, it's reduced maybe ten, twenty percent, and after another six months, it's it's reduced again. But why? So, why do you want to do that, David? To, I presume. To, I presume to, you objected it. The two hundred euro spring bonus, which was announced there today for people in social welfare, you disagree with that, do you? Well, well no, I, I, what I would agree with is, is, is like, basically, if, if they're giving money out, give it out to everyone. Okay. I don't well, see why. That's what they did with the gas and electric bill. Yeah, 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 and uh, that, that, like, I. Your first but then, when, there. but then when that happened, you had, in fairness, you had St Vincent de Paul, you had the various uh, organisations, Social Justice Ireland, I don't know who they represent, but they are an organisation. And they, I heard them on at the weekend saying, uh, you have to target the measures, target the measures. So, so the government but did, you, uh, the government tar- did tar- what Vincent Nepal and Social Justice Ireland asked them to do. But target the measures at who? Target the measures at the people uh, that on won't social work. welfare. Yeah, well, they, that they won't work. They won't go into a spare and say, have you a job? Okay, um, I, you know, t- take me on and give me a go. Yeah, but in fairness, okay, David, some people, some people couldn't work in Spar because they, they 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 don't have the literacy or computing skills. They didn't have a good education, and, and you know what yeah, it is? It's not everyone that doesn't want to work. Uh, the, 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 there's a small amount of people that are. Yeah. I, I I take your point that there 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 is certain people would say maybe in the forties, fifties that. The poor education, uh, but that I believe that's a small cohort. There's a there's a major cohort in their twenties and thirties that are born into this basically welfare culture and have no intention of working. Okay. That's David Devaney thundering against social welfare to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. Award-winning screenwriter and director Kieran Cray joined Ryan Turberley this morning to talk about his latest film, Anne, which tells the story of Anne Lovett, the Granard teenager who died in childbirth. Ryan started by asking Kieran to remind listeners of Anne Lovett's story. Uh, well, basically, Anne Lovett, um, uh, she grew up in a town called Granard, and at age 15, she was full-term pregnant, and she ended up in the grotto where she had the child, and both of them uh, were deceased. Um, this is the 31st of January 1984, which is like 39 years ago, yeah. which really is such a, a short time. Like I remember when I was growing up and it came out and how shocking it was. But as a teenager, like you moved on with your life, whatever. But 
it was just really it was unreal that something like that could happen and like if you from the research that I did about her uh, only for say someone like Emily um, um, Emily she yeah she, uh, you're talking about the ombudsman? The, the ex-ombudsman, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she, she broke the story because the story kind of had slipped away uh, in the first week. But she went and she stuck with it and brought it out. Uh, because, I mean, it is a seminal story in, in Irish society. And we have a lot of them, um, a lot of shameful secrets from our past. And I think this is one of them. Uh, and when I reconnected with the story in 2018, when uh, the Irish Times did a series of articles, and I was I, when I read the first article I was written, it really touched me, and it kind of brought me to, to well, this poor girl, fifteen years of age in nineteen eighty four. I mean, how did she feel? Like, say, and a fifteen year old girl in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty three is so much. They know so much. They can see everything. There's so much information available for them. But she was on her own, full term pregnant, walking the streets on the day that uh, the baby was born. Uh, it was just shocking, like. It, it seemed to have had this uh, uh, convulsive reaction in Ireland um, and almost a visceral reaction from people when the details started to come out. Um, and did you get into the, um, in your research, the, the letters that came into Gay Byrne then and people telling their own stories? I mean, this seemed to open a whole vista for people and uh, an opportunity for women in particular to come out and, and talk about their not dissimilar experiences. Well, I suppose the, the first thing to remember is that nobody really talked about this topic uh, from the locality. Um, so when I came to the story, I was so surprised that a film had been made or there was so little in the in the media about it. Um, obviously, in relation to Gay Byrne, I mean, like, I suppose there's a famous incident where he was reading and it was kind of a bit dismissive. And then the women of Ireland wrote in just to show, like, what really had been going on which wasn't being highlighted. But you have to remember this is the 1980s it's not yeah. now and so the it, it's just a different, different time yeah it was in 1984 so I mean from what I, I was only a young kid at, at the time but you, you know look, looking back you don't have to be have to have been there necessarily to to know from from a history and political and sociological history that it was it was dark and it was a country um, with with secrets, it was a, a big, dirty, giant rug mm. under which we swept all our problems. Really, yeah. uh, but this was one of the early times. I mean, when you think of the the say, the abuse scandals that came out in the nineties after Eamon um, Casey and so on, that was uh, another. But this was earlier on in the eighties, so different, and suddenly we had this story that seemed to to connect to people. Um, why did you decide? Well, actually, before we do that, uh, Granard, I'm sure that when people from Granard hear the name of their town mentioned in our village in uh, on the radio, they groan and go, here we go again. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to, to the Lovett family at all. I just feel that they seem to be a community who decided we don't want to discuss this. Leave us alone. Um, and yet it comes up because by accident of fate, it was there from where Anne came and uh, therefore she it, it became part of the story. Yeah, I mean, that's true, like, you know, and I mean, from the very start, there's a very famous interview uh, on the TV uh, with the, the principal in the school where all the teachers were lined up behind her and she read out a prepared statement at the time. Like, it was, when you actually, if you, it's on YouTube, if you look at it, it really is, it's pretty stunning and in it, in what you actually see. Um, but from, from there till now, nobody will talk about it. Now we, we did have a contact in Granard uh, who made some inquiries for us, but there was nothing coming back. Still, after all these years, nothing they just don't back. want to know. No. What did the principal say? What was the gist of it? 
it was just a prepared statement if we'd have known we would have done something okay. just along those lines like, yeah. you know, so. so it's one thing to be fascinated by the story and it's another to be moved by the story and it's another thing altogether to want to make a film about the story talk, talk to me about that well it's said like when I read that article in 2018 it was very much from, the, from what actually went on during her day and that kind of stuck with me like you know if you if, if trying to put yourself in her shoes and you wake up maybe your walls are broken you know something's happening you're 15 you know yeah. very little what do I do and like we know that she went out around the town and she was hiding and she appeared at different times during the day like you know so I just imagined what it would be like to be in that position and it's, that's just so powerful because from day one with this I always wanted to be, to be about Anne yeah. not about like the whodunit or beforehand or after just about her and give her her time and that's why we shot it in a certain way so the camera was very much with her uh, and we went with her on her journey like you know and yeah. I know it's a very shocking story and a shocking journey that she went on but that doesn't mean as a filmmaker you shouldn't do it And was part of it to keep her story alive? I think to keep it alive I think to bring it to the fore because I mean I think I think I'm very much I very much like European cinema and, and the old style cinema where I think it's our responsibility to put it up there and then let let the public decide what what they want to do or, or say about it and, and that's why we, we it's kind of it's almost documentary style yeah uh, the film so so we weren't pushing ideas in your face we wanted you to see what it was and then see what you what comes from you from it and people who've seen it like they, they say like a week two weeks later they're still talking about it yes yeah, I think that's what we succeeded in. You filmed a lot of it when I was watching it. A lot of from behind, mm. so you're watching people going walking down the street. You're watching the shoulders going yeah. down the street. There was there a reason for that. Well, I suppose from the very start when I wrote it, I mean, I just had in mind I just wanted to be with the people. So, in the end, myself and Dave Grennan, the cinematographer, uh, we worked out this this scheme where it was the cameras from behind and yeah. switched to the front, and like and that was how we changed the action. And when you when you're the cameras behind somebody and they're walking, yeah. you're really walking in their shoes. I think that's why, why, why we really like that kind of approach. And when you're when you're when you're leading the person and the, car, the person's face is right in front of the camera and it's quite close to the camera, again you just see what's kind of going on with them. Kieran Cray, writer and director of Anne, a film about Anne Lovett, talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning. Claire Burns, Waterford librarians. Jenny Loughran and Tracy McEnany convened this morning to discuss the best and worst literary adaptations. When it comes to a book um, or a film series, should we read the book first or before we watch it or should we do it the other way around? You can do it both ways because books are always good. Ah, you've been safe now. (laughs) Ah, there you go. Uh, But you can... Um, I would recommend reading a book first because you cannot beat your own imagination. Because if you um, see normal people, you're going to always remember the O'Neill Shorts and uh, Paul Meskell and um, Daisy Edgar Jones as those two main characters, Conan and Marianne, and they're not going to come out of your head. So you're kind of ruined. But saying that, the adaptations that they do for the films and series from the books are pretty very loosely based on the books mm-hmm. so you can go and and uh, watch the film and then read the book but the exception to this rule is and I think we're going to be hearing and the Oscar goes to Colin Kuhn don't worry about those BAFTAs the BAFTAs are <laughs> been and gone I'm telling you here now I'm putting my money on Colin Kuhn and that book was absolutely brilliant 
and the fi- and the film was just amazing. If you and the book is faster. Book is faster. By it Claire was Claire Keegan. Keegan and Jenny has good news uh, for uh, Claire Keegan again. And um, but just it's a small read, ninety six pages, an hour and a half on any audiobook. But it was just. Absolutely fantastic. What's the good news, Jenny? Well, uh, one of her, her other books, which was Booker nominated, is called Small Things Like These. And it's in pre-production at the moment. You start filming in March in New Ross and Killian Murphy's involved. Oh, wow. So great book, That's great cast. Fabulous book. Great it's location. Fabulous book. And I'm, not, I'm not to too sure it. if it's going to be a film or a series, but yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And on, on that question, how do you feel about it? Book first or do you watch it? Um, I would I would always say try the book first. And I think it's, an, it's almost a gift to readers when they know that there's a character or a series or a book that they love is going to end up on the big screen or in a series on mm-hmm. the small screen. It's nearly a reward for them and then you can have the argument afterwards. They left out this bit. Yes, or <laughs> that she or she was far too she was far too pretty to play that character. That character wasn't realistic enough. But equally in the libraries we would find that people are coming in looking for books because they have seen the film or because they have watched a series. Bridgerton but, now is popping into my mind because yeah. nobody really bothered too much with Bridgerton the book I until had, it was made and then no one in the libraries had heard of Bridgerton really and I was talking to some friends who were working in, in bookshops they hadn't heard of them either and none of my friends even my friends who would always just read romance 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 hadn't read the Julia Quinn books at all and I we, we, we got them into the libraries when the demand was there I didn't like the books I was still love Bridgerton yes. I watch Bridgerton and I, I've heard that too I've heard that too that perhaps you might be better off sticking with the the screen version there, but you're each to their own. Now, there's a couple of adaptations coming up that uh, you can't wait to see, Jenny. You, you'll start us off with this list. Yeah, here. I'm really looking forward to coming out on Amazon next month is an adaptation of Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And the book was released in 2019. I discovered it through my book club. And I loved it because it's the kind of book that if you're very busy, like I was, very small children at the time, can put it down, read a few pages, come back to it two days later, maybe a week later. But most people will read read it in one sitting and it's a fictionalised account of a band called The Six who are already popular and Daisy Jones joins the band and then it's told in a documentary style transcript and it's coming out as a mini series of 10 episodes but what I find very interesting about this and I think it's really helping with the excitement is Taylor Jenkins Reid has been very big on book talk and a couple of weeks ago I was working at a bake sale in my young young lad's school and we had lovely transition years from the secondary over helping out they were great and I just said to them on their break what are you all reading and they were all reading Taylor Jenkins Reid Power of TikTok eh Yeah <laughs> and all her novels are can be read standalone but she's a series of novels that are set in the same universe and they love making the connections and they were all really excited in fact it was them that told me it's going to be on Amazon I was kind of aware that there was a TV series coming, but I hadn't really registered. But so they, they, they had knew, the gen yeah. on that. So that's yeah. Daisy Jones and the Six. And then, of course, the small things like these, which you've, you've just yeah. spoken about. What's Heartstopper? So Heartstopper is uh, based on a series of graphic novels. It was originally web comics written by an author called Alice Oseman. And they're aimed for teenagers. And um, we've had series one on Netflix and quite unusually, but I think it's a sign of the success of the first series when they announced they were making season two they announced season three ah okay and they I think knew it was going to be a hit yeah, yeah. and uh, it's romantic it's coming of age you've got 
schoolboy Charlie falls in love with his classmate and all of their different friends and the adults in it because it is kind of set in kind of secondary school level the adults in it are kind of in the background it's all told from the young people's point of view and uh, it's been really popular like the TV series has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I've got to them a good gauge Now Stephen King uh, Tracy is somebody that the movie makers just love don't they they seem to land on absolutely everything that he writes with varying levels of success when they transfer onto the big screen Well the Stephen King has 60 of his books or novellas into um, TV series or films, right? And now that he is, that's the most for the any living author at the moment, right? Um, his, but if you went to the Waterford Greenway on a very busy Sunday and you asked all the cyclists and the walkers and the runners, what is your favourite film? 50% of the population are going to say Shawshank Redemption, right? And this was made from a book, Rita Hayward and Shawshank Redemption. That was a Stephen King. And another one that you, if you haven't watched this film, it's on Netflix at the moment and it is called Stand By Me. And this was adapted from a book, the novella called The Body. And this is a 1986 film, watched it recently. Twelve, uh, 12-year-old boys, they know that there's a body hidden in the woods and they have to go and find it. And it's a, about sort of two rival gangs, but really, really good, uh, brilliant film and it would make you cry. It's about an hour and a half long. And when it comes to what Stephen King likes and doesn't like himself, it's The Shining, isn't it? The one that irks him. Uh, the Jack Nicholson, yes, it irks him. Uh, that is his least favourite. And his most favourite is Stand By Me. Good call, Mr King. That's Jenny Loughran and Tracy McEnany, Claire Burns' Waterford Librarians, discussing literary adaptations for the screen this morning. The host of the 2023 BAFTA Awards, the very lovely Richard E. Grant, spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon about all things BAFTA and some things Grant-related. When you got the call, how did you react? Uh, I thought immediately that, you know, the best way I can put it is I thought, well, it's like a peanut selection if they're choosing a host for uh, BAFTAs, that you either... You either go, you know, caramelized, dry roasted, you know, are you going to skewer people like a comedian or do you do caramelized, you know, salty or just plain Ricky Gervais Armageddon where if you're a solo comedian, you can skewer everybody in the room and still carry on working. But because of the job I do, because I'm an actor, I have to collaborate and work with other actors, writers and directors. So all of whom are the most powerful on the planet in that room. Mm. So the last thing you want to do is do that, you know. So, so what sort of nut are you then? Is the question, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> that's for somebody else to decide. Okay. I thought, well, you've just got to be as heartfelt, as sincere as you possibly can be, because I'm a, I'm a fanboy of, of so many, you know. Mm. That must have added to the nerves, Richard, because you're there and you're looking out at all these people and you're picking them off. You know, there's Emma Thompson, there's Baz Luhrmann, you know, like it's all of these people. Well, there and you all- know, the advantage of it is, you know, in the, in the, the fear of committing career aside, um, I knew that once I saw the nominations, I thought, well, I know the majority of people or have worked with most of them mm-hmm. who have been nominated. So that helps a lot. Of course, you feel really bad because every bookie and every, it seemed like, you know, Colin Farrell was a, you know, yes, an absolute yes. dead search Chewing, win. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, I felt so bad for him because I know that situation of having been in 
that three years ago when I was nominated for, mm. for a film that I was in, you then have to you spend your evening consoling the people that feel so disappointed on your behalf. Um, so it's sort of a weird situation to be in that, you know, I've never spoken to anybody about it and never anticipated that, but I could feel for Colin that that's, I imagine that's, partly what he was going through uh, and but, then you know, just hopefully from, the oscars will rectify it hopefully <laughs> uh, from your experience of that I, I suppose you don't really want people to come over and commiserate with you you'd prefer to be left alone i imagine because what do you think yeah and uh, you know the other thing is that there was such a grand swell you know it was it really was england versus germany so um you know, i thought that if they're getting you know barry keen want and then carrie condon one both of whom i worked with and absolutely loved um i thought well it seems so, a sure path that because all of western, western front wasn't getting acting you yes. know, nominations or awards that Colin was definitely on on the path to glory, but no, you know, it didn't hey, happen. It didn't happen. Wasn't so, Alison Hammond was your co-presenter. Um, yes. Babe. <laughs> and you could be getting the call to do more of the two E together, do you think? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, you know, that's what it's what she does for a living. That's that's her full time job, whereas yeah. you know, I was rookieing on it. But you, you you just look to be enjoying yourself so much. There was a sort of a, a youthful, nervous energy about the whole thing, which was very appealing. Good. Well, at the age of 65 and three quarters, to be called youthful energy. I'm very grateful <laughs> for that. Ray. It's very diplomatically put. And, and you, were up the, you were up this morning then doing recording an audiobook. I have been, yeah. There all day. Yeah, I've just finished. Right. There's yeah. a sort of an energy, isn't there? There's the adrenaline yeah. is pumping through the veins. It does. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Okay. And it's, you know, it's like being in the Swedish Job of Fame. You just meet, you know, every person you've ever wanted to meet in your whole life. In there. <laughs> That's why they asked me, because they knew that I wasn't going to go out there and skewer people. And because mm. I'd been so enthusiastic in the award circuit three years ago, I thought, oh, well, yeah. give this guy a, a, a run around. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, you were canvassing for work as well which was nice <laughs> I like that. tongue and cheekily I know but still you, you know tongue and cheek or whatever you got it, you got the message out there which was which was great uh, so what happens after that a thing like that because it, it went live for that last what was it two quarters of an hour half hour half yeah. hour yeah yeah and and you were building up to that and of course you were you were working away towards that and then it went live and then then was there a sort of a shot to the arm for the live bit uh, there was a 20-second break between the stuff that we'd been recording. Yeah. And then they said, there's 20 seconds that you've got to fill in with the audience. And, you know, at that point, I had to warn them that whoever came up on the stage in the live half hour, not to swear, not to do this, not to do that. Yeah. And um, yeah. I blew off a couple of expletives into the into the house just to, oh, just to yeah, give them just a clear the shot. air, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So it's it's been a sort of a bittersweet few years for you, hasn't it? Because there's a mm-hmm. renaissance, and then you lost your poor wife. Um, yeah. So bittersweet. Uh, how are you now? It's you know it's a sort of daily daily navigation of that. You know, it's mm. been 15 months since she died, and um, she was very smart. And then she said to my daughter and I just before she died to find a pocket full of happiness in each day, and it's become a great sort of guide and mantra to deal with things. So. You know, last night was a bucket full. Yeah, so that'll do you for a few weeks anyway. What that's exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Isn't that a lovely, that's a lovely thing, a pocket full of happiness. Pocket full of happiness. Ah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's lovely, yeah. Um, so are you, as well as getting offered the BAFTAs, you're, you're, mm-hmm. are you get, you're getting offers of audiobooks and, and films? 
Uh, yes, I'm. Uh, I'm about to start doing a, an HBO comedy series directed by Sam Mendes about the making of a Marvel comic type thing called oh, the franchise. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, so I'm doing that next. So it's poking so fun. Employment. So it's yeah. poking fun at the whole Marvel franchise thing. Yeah. Which is, yeah, that's that's loads of comedy potential there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hope yeah. so. <laughs> Are you finished the audiobook or is it a week long? Uh, no, thing? finished. You're finished. All right. Yeah. So yeah. What, what does what does this evening hold for you then? Uh, I am going to go home right now and go into the feathers, into the scratcher. You're right. You deserve yeah. it. You deserve it. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. So now all eyes are on the, the Oscars. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so knowing what you do and, and doing what you do, we're very hopeful because there's a lot of Irish nominees this year, the, the most ever. Absolutely. A yeah. landslide ever. You yes. know, Darren McCormack. Yes. Yeah. So, so, Gleeson. And, yeah. 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 Who, who do you think might walk away with an Oscar? Barry Kilgore? I, I, I hope that Barry gets it and I certainly hope that Colin does. Have you ever worked yeah, with Colin? Really no, but my wife, my late wife, uh, worked with him a lot. And so that's how I know him. Aha, uh-huh. she was a voice coach. Yeah. Right. Yeah, she worked with him a lot. It, it's interesting because uh, Austin Butler thanked his voice coach last night. Yes, yeah. Yeah, you probably, you obviously noticed that because of, 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 of your I did, voice. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, think, I think that if you're playing Elvis, you can't not. If he didn't mention his voice coach, you would have been really remiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The marvellous Richard E. Grant talking to Ray Darcy at some stage on Monday, I'm guessing, but put out an air this afternoon. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Minister for the Environment Eamon Ryan is introducing legislation to govern the use of e-scooters, and it's hoped that the bill will finally clear up the legal uncertainty around the use of these silent killers on your local footpath. <clears throat> Just kidding. Claire Byrne spoke to Evan O'Dwyer of O'Dwyer Solicitors in Ballyhawn as County Mayo and Janet Horner, Green Party Councillor on Dublin City Council, about the issue this morning. So Evan, let's just run the rule over this and just tell us what the current legal status of e-scooters is right now. Thank you, Claire. Um, the, um, the, at the moment, these new devices, which are inventions appearing on a road, are not governed by any law. Uh, the existing road traffic laws com- have come into existence in 1961, long before the onset of e-scooters, the concept of that. So what's happening is that they're operating effectively in a lacuna. So they're, they're, they're unregulated. Uh, they don't have any rules and regulations. They're not governed. They're not policed. Uh, they're not in, uh, capable of being uh, managed in any way, not only for the users, but most importantly for the people that are interacting with them, such as pedestrians or uh, ro- other road users. Mm-hmm. So I can, if I had a, an electric scooter, I can be up on the footpath, down onto the road, whizzing, undercutting pedestrians, and really there's no law to stop me doing that. You can do whatever you want. And furthermore, you don't have to be illuminated or high-vised or helmeted or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but is it illegal to use them on the roads? Well, the the whole concept of the roads is that the roads are there to be used by everybody. Uh, the roads can be used by pedestrians where there's no uh, footpaths or, or cyclists where there's no cycle lanes. So it's a one size fits all. So the answer mm-hmm. is yes. But at the moment, the the, road, the bill that's proposed is to take uh, them off the roads and bring them on to footpaths or cycle paths and so on. And again, it's there's an absolute imperative that they be regulated. But by the same token, how do you find a niche for them, particularly when you're dealing with a vehicle, which this is, 
propelling at 20 kilometres an hour in the in the context of pedestrians around them. So it does meet the definition of a mechanically propelled vehicle, but it's not possible to tax them. So it's illegal then to be on a public roadway with them. Well, you can. Uh, that's not definitively the case because. Mm-hmm. But that's what the department even, tell us, um, Evan, saying that they can be used on private land with the landowner's permission. But because you can't tax, register, or insure them, it is illegal to use them on public roads and in public places. Well, that's that might be the department's position, but it's not being enforced at the moment, and it's not definitively the position because the department cannot have a position in circumstances where there is no existing law in place for them at present. Hence, the reason why this bill is coming into being. Okay, so now, Janet, last year there were seven hundred and forty-six traffic accidents involving e-scooters, and they're the ones we know about because they're on the the guard the the guard the pulse system. The biggest safety issues then with e-scooters at the moment, in your opinion, and I know that you're somebody who's regularly on the roads on your on your bike, your your normal regular push bike. Yeah, I think, I mean, e-scooters are definitely a concern for people. They are something that is new. I think primarily where people are most concerned about them is when they are being used on the footpaths. And I think that it is fairly unequivocal that that is not where they belong. Um, I think there there's definitely some a lot of opportunities in bringing in e-scooters into the city in different ways, um, particularly if you think about things like last mile uh, journeys, so that if you're coming up to Houston... Um, from anywhere else in Ireland, it may not be very easy to bring your bike in the train. There's certain limitations in that. But you could bring an e-scooter with you and you could zip down the keys pretty quickly mm-hmm. and get to wherever you need to go So, so you're pretty saying quickly. Th- the best place for them and for, th- for the people who use them is in the cycle lane? I think, I believe that the, the best way to address a lot of the safety issues we have in our roads at the moment is to provide that safe infrastructure. And I think the evidence would back that up as well to say that if you want to ensure that people, pedestrians are safe, around e-scooters, you need to make sure they are not on the footpaths and that the footpaths are safe spaces. If you want to make sure people using e-scooters are safe around cars, you need to have a segregated um, barrier between cars and the Mm e-scooters and the bikes and even the electric wheelchairs or whatever else that people might be using in in those cycle lanes. So this proposed legislation, will it do that? Will it put the e-scooters into the cycle lanes? I am hoping that's what it will do. I mean, obviously we need to provide that infrastructure. Like even at the moment, a lot of people will still cycle on the footpaths. I don't think that's acceptable in any way whatsoever, but it will continue to be the norm while people feel it is safer to cycle on a footpath than cycle on a road if they feel they're been pushed up against a, a heavy vehicle, for example. So if we want people to choose to use not to choose the footpath, we need to provide that safe infrastructure. I think that's the most important thing. The legislation as it's framed at the moment is really providing the power to the minister to regulate. So it's not hard baking the rules into primary legislation because that can be very, if an issue emerges and if we decide we want to change or we want to be flexible in the future, it can be very hard to go back and change primary legislation. So it's the start of a process. Um, That last mile that you spoke about, Janet, uh, Evan, that's what I see at the moment. People jumping on the dart with the scooter in hand that they've used to get from their house, say, to the dart station or to the bus station or from the bus station into their place of work or wherever they're planning on going. But are you seeing them being used in rural areas? Are there many e-scooters in Ballyhonas? Uh, there certainly are. I see them certainly in my my journey to work in the morning. So it's not just an urban phenomenon. But the thing that bothers me uh, most about them is that while, yes, it's an evolution of getting that last mile or even the last four or five kilometres in my situation as I see them, the problem is that if there's 
because they're unregulated, if there's a collision between an e-scooter and uh, a pedestrian or in, they're involved in some form, they cause a car accident. There is no insurance with these. And the user is therefore uh, their personal responsibility. And in many cases, there's no personal responsibility. So that being the case, there's a knock-on or consequential effect for other pedestrians and road users, including uh, car drivers and passengers. That's just completely unforeseen. And that, that causes me great concern. So if you're involved in any sort of an accident with somebody who's using a scooter, they're not going to have liability because they're not going to be insured. Can you pursue the individual? You can, of course, but you're pursuing a person of straw. You're in, in all probability, you're pursuing somebody who is, you know, akin to a, a, a cyclist. Yeah. And that causes concern. See, the, the problem is now, Janet, if you go down this road where people are expected to tax and insure their scooters, it makes them far less popular, doesn't it? It's likely to. Yeah, and I don't think that is what is going to be provided for. I think we are looking at something much more similar to, um, as was said, a, a cyclist, that this is something similar to a bike. It will go at a similar pace to a bike. It'll be small. It'll be the same similar weight to a bike. So really the liability involved in it will be similar to what we see when people are cycling on the streets at the moment. But and people use them differently to how they use a bike. And you would know that as a cyclist. In what way? They're flying along silently. Sometimes they don't have a helmet. Sometimes they don't have lights. I think because cyclist behaviour is more ingrained in most cases, and I'm aware I'm generalising here, but most cyclists will be wearing a helmet and will have lights on their bike. It's not the case with people who use e-scooters. You often see people who are in very dark clothes, no lights and no helmet, and it's silent. And I would say most of that could be said about cycling as well. So there are issues there. But um, certainly one of the things we would be keen to see is when that legislation comes in, that there will be a speed cap on the scooters. So you don't want people um, exceeding a certain speed because it is different even from the the physics of it. If you have to brake suddenly on a scooter um, and you're standing up, you will go flying forward in a way that you won't uh, on a bike. Janet Horner, Green Party Councillor on Dublin City Council, who, along with Evan O'Dwyer of O'Dwyer Solicitors in Ballyhonas, County Mayo, was discussing upcoming legislation on the use of e-scooters on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.